search warrant was authorized by a federal court upon the required finding of probable cause. In a nationwide address, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland defended the legality of the FBI search of former President Trump's residence. It's Thursday, August 11th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead on WBUR, five years after Charlottesville, the city has approved a plan to melt down the Robert E. Lee statue that was central to a deadly and violent white nationalist rally there and put a public art installation there in its place. And Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella was one of the officers leading the U.S. Marine Corps at the Kabul airport when the Taliban took over. We'll bring you the second of a two-part conversation where he recounts what followed. It's 401. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Attorney General Merrick Garland says he personally approved the decision to execute a search warrant for former President Donald Trump's Florida estate this week. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the Justice Department says it's also taking steps to unseal the details of the warrant. Garland says the department has filed papers in federal court in Florida to unseal the search warrant and the property receipt of what was taken during the FBI's court-authorized search this week of Mar-a-Lago. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. Garland says he personally approved the decision to seek the warrant and said it was not a decision made lightly. He also defended the Justice Department and the FBI, both of which have faced fierce criticism from Trump supporters since the Mar-a-Lago search. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Gasoline prices hit a milestone in the United States today. NPR Scott Horsley reports that's helping to extend a rally on Wall Street. Stock prices are going up as gasoline prices continue to fall. AAA says the average price of regular gas nationwide dropped below $4 a gallon today for the first time since March. Falling gas prices pushed inflation down last month from a four-decade high in June. Many investors think that will give the Federal Reserve room to proceed more cautiously in raising interest rates. Betting markets now anticipate a half percentage point rate increase at the next Fed meeting in September. Oddsmakers were expecting a larger rate hike before this week's cost of living report. Wholesale prices are also easing. The producer price index unexpectedly fell by half a percent between June and July. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Democratic-led House is preparing to vote on President Biden's tax cut and climate change proposal on Friday. The bill provides more than $430 billion in new spending over the next 10 years. The measure cleared the Senate with no support from Republicans on Sunday. It's expected to pass the House by a simple majority vote. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is promising a new package of measures to help the country tackle inflation and the rising cost of energy. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more. Speaking at his first annual summer press conference, Scholz said Germany would tackle its energy crisis in solidarity with the European Union and that he was pushing for the construction of a new pipeline from Portugal through Spain and France to reduce Germany's dependence on Russian natural gas. Germany has brought down its reliance since the war started, but still depends on Russia for around a third of its natural gas. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting from Berlin. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 27 points, the S&P down 2. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Baker this afternoon signed into law a sweeping climate bill. The measure creates new investments in the offshore wind industry, increases rebates for the purchase of electric vehicles, and prompts the installation of more electric vehicle chargers. Baker ultimately signed the bill despite having reservations with parts of it, among them a provision that permits 10 cities and towns to ban fossil fuel hookups from new construction projects. Baker says he's concerned that could make the state's housing crunch worse. The NBA is honoring the late Celtics legend Bill Russell by retiring his number six league-wide. The NBA commissioner made the announcement today in recognition of the Hall of Famer's success on the court and his civil act civil rights activism. Any players who currently wear number six can continue to do so, but it won't be used after they stop playing. Russell won 11 championships with Boston. He died in late July. Provincetown officials hope to fix by the weekend what they're calling a major sewer emergency. WBUR's John Bender reports the problem is affecting about a third of the Cape Cod tourist spot. All restaurants and public restrooms in the popular commercial area are closed. Residents are asked to limit all water use. Town manager Alex Morse says the sewer issues were caused by a heavy storm earlier this week. If we did nothing and volume continued to be where it was over the last couple of days, worst case, we'd start seeing backups into people's tubs and toilets and things like that. So we've been able to avoid that so far. The small town's population increases by tens of thousands during the busy summer season. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. Mayor Michelle Wu is introducing a new policy that aims to bring more diversity, equity, and inclusion to Boston real estate projects. It would request developers disclose their plans to include women and people of color in any large building projects. Wu believes having that information about the teams and investors behind developments will help advance economic opportunities in the real estate sector for everyone. This will at least signal and um, force all of us to be incredibly intentional about what matters in this process that it's not just about height and floor area ratio, um, but who is benefiting and what that impact will feel like on the ground. The Boston Planning and Development Agency Board will vote on the policy later today. Sports the Red Sox host the Orioles tonight over at Fenway. The forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 63 degrees, mostly sunny, near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early Saturday, then it'll be mostly sunny. The highs will be near 77 degrees. Sunday will be sunny, 82 degrees will be the high. Partly sunny on Monday with a chance of showers in the afternoon. The high will be around 80 degrees. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Attorney General Merrick Garland has broken his silence about the unprecedented search of former President Trump's property in Florida this week. In careful public remarks, Garland said he personally signed off on the search warrant and he has asked a court to unseal the warrant so the public can see it. Faithful adherence to the rule of law is the bedrock principle of the Justice Department and of our democracy. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been listening in, and she is here with us now to talk more about it. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so I know that Garland generally likes to speak through the work of the Justice Department, but 
Today, he made a choice, right, to make a personal direct public statement in this case. Why do you think that is? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about exactly why the FBI searched former President Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago. Trump and Republican leaders in Congress have been demanding answers about the search and blasting the Justice Department without providing any evidence. So Garland this afternoon asked the court in Florida to unseal the search warrant and the property receipt. That's a kind of inventory the FBI gave Trump's lawyer. Garland pointed out that a search warrant was a big step for the DOJ, perhaps referring to what our sources have described as a runaround from Trump and turning over the materials that should have gone to the National Archives. Here's Garland. The department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means as an alternative to a search and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. And of course, also, Trump could have made this information public on his own, but he didn't want to. He preferred to issue a statement accusing the administration of weaponizing the Justice Department against him, again, with no evidence. Right. Okay. And as we mentioned, Garland said he personally signed off on the warrant, and so did a judge. So I'm curious, how soon do you think the documents might be released, Carrie? Well, the court filing by the DOJ this afternoon cites intense public interest in the case and the fact that the former president is the one who confirmed the search in the first place. But it's giving Trump a chance to object to the release of these documents. There's no word from Trump yet, so it's not clear how quickly the court will act on this. I'll add that several media organizations have gone to court to unseal these materials, too. And we don't know exactly what the FBI was looking for, only that it relates to what the National Archives has called the discovery of some highly classified documents Trump took to Mar-a-Lago. The archives got 15 boxes back, but the FBI on Monday took a bunch more boxes. Okay, and I remember, like, when Garland became attorney general, he was accused by Democrats for not moving quickly enough to investigate Trump's inner circle after the Capitol riot. And now, I mean, he's getting criticism from Republicans who want to defend Trump. So do you have any insight as to how Garland might be thinking about all these different pressures on him. Yeah, this attorney general wants to play it right down the middle of the lane. He says all the time that he wants to follow the facts and the law, not to undermine any investigations, but also not to smear anyone who's not charged with a crime. Here's more of what Garland said today about that. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. All Americans are entitled to the even-handed application of the law, to due process of the law, and to the presumption of innocence. Well, I want to talk about public perception of the Justice Department because this week Chris Wray, the FBI director, raised concerns about an increase in threats against FBI agents. And there was even an incident in Ohio today at an FBI office there. What did Garland have to say about all these threats? The attorney general didn't directly reference the incident in Cincinnati, but he spoke forcefully on behalf of the FBI and his prosecutors this afternoon. I will not stand by silently when their integrity is unfairly attacked. The men and women of the FBI and the Justice Department are dedicated, patriotic public servants. Every day, they protect the American people. And the attorney general says he's honored to work alongside those people as this process involving uh, Trump and the search at Mar-a-Lago plays out over time. That is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thank you so much, Carrie. Happy to be here.
Racial justice advocates in Charlottesville, Virginia, are reclaiming one of the symbols that sparked a deadly and violent white nationalist rally five years ago this week. The city has approved a plan to melt down a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and create a more inclusive public art installation. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports it is one of several anti-hate initiatives in response to the white supremacist violence there in 2017. In a downtown Charlottesville park, grass now grows over the spot where Robert E. Lee sat astride his horse Traveler. It's, uh, it's different. It's, uh, it's much more serene. Don Gathers is a co-founder of the local Black Lives Matter group and served on a citizens advisory committee that recommended Charlottesville remove Confederate symbols from public spaces. He was among the hundreds of counter-protesters who turned out five years ago to stand against the white nationalists fighting to protect the Lee statue. On the night of August 11th, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klansmen, and other white supremacists marched through the University of Virginia campus bearing torches. The next day, they showed up at the downtown park. It's not what you can remember, it's what you're still trying to forget. Uh, I, I, I remember the entire day. All the, uh, the hatefulness and the evilness that, 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 that transpired here. Here's how KKK leader David Duke described the mission during the Unite the Right rally. This represents a turning point for the people of this country. We're going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump because he said he's going to take our country back. Gathers recalls things escalated quickly. As they lobbed uh, <laughs> all manner of things, rocks, uh, soda cans filled with concrete and cement, uh, water bottles filled with urine tear gas and, 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 uh, and smoke grenades and, and literally every five to seven feet, I'd say, fights breaking out. Gathers says police didn't intervene until the governor declared a state of emergency and shut down the rally. Later, as white supremacists spread through town, a neo-Nazi rammed his car through a crowd of counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring dozens of people. Two state police officers monitoring the scene died in a helicopter crash. His hometown was ravaged by white supremacists. Because of President Trump, Gather says, they felt they had cover to come out of the shadows. No longer are they uh, embarrassed, they're emboldened. Much of that goes to uh, the credit of 45, uh, with his continuous dog whistles to them. And, you know, no one wanted to accept that or believe it as it was unfolding, but after August 11th and 12th, Charlottesville, there was January 6th. As the fighting broke out in Charlottesville, Trump responded by placing equal blame on the anti-racists and the white supremacists. This egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides, on many sides. Days later, reporters questioned his response. Trump declared that there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. I think that Charlottesville was the early warning sign. Anti-hate activist Emily Gorsensky. You can draw a straight line from the events of Charlottesville to January 6th. Gorsensky, a transgender woman, was attacked during Unite the Right events in Charlottesville and pepper sprayed by a white supremacist who later pleaded guilty to assault charges. 
After a series of death threats, she moved to Germany, but remains active in fighting the groups responsible for what happened in her hometown. Her experience led her to use her training as a data scientist to track white supremacists and neo-Nazis through online projects called First Vigil and How Hate Sleeps. There isn't awareness of the ways that these white supremacist groups recruit, attract members, share their ideology, share their messaging. And that's a real problem because we can't simply eliminate the groups to solve the problem, we have to eliminate the undercurrents of white supremacy that give rise to these groups. Another project in Charlottesville is trying to upend the narrative around the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. It's called Swords into Plowshares and is being overseen by the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center. Here's director Andrea Douglas. Taking something that was harmful and then transforming it into something that is useful and of the cultural desire of the place. The city donated the statue to the Heritage Center after approving its plan to melt down the bronze and use it for a new work of public art. Two groups have filed a lawsuit trying to stop the plan, but Douglas says they're moving ahead and gathering public input. This is about doing something different than what was done before. Before, one portion of this community made decisions about what would be in our common spaces and negated the voice that had it not been for Jim Crow could have had a voice. So we're trying to return that voice. Douglas says the idea is to create an inviting and equitable space where all of Charlottesville can interact with one another and the reworked art. For Don Gathers, it's still hard to come to the park where Robert E. Lee stood sentry since 1924. It's, it's kind of surreal because the, the ghost of his presence still permeates heavily in this space. Much like the country, he says, it feels like there are warring spirits vying for dominance. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Charlottesville, Virginia. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 77 degrees in Boston at 419. Ahead on All Things Considered, the second part of our conversation with the officer who led the Marine Corps one year ago when Kabul fell to the Taliban. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In business news, state gaming regulators are expressing concern about the offerings at the state's two resort-style casinos. A report released today shows Encore Boston Harbor has far fewer poker tables now than it did before the pandemic. It also shows MGM Springfield has about half the number of table games than it predicted it would in its initial application. 
State gaming commissioners said today they may require more frequent reporting from casinos to ensure they are delivering what patrons want and the jobs that come along with the table games. On Wall Street, stocks were mixed today. The Dow finished up 27 points at 33,337. NASDAQ fell 75 points at 12,780. And the S&P 500 was down three points to close at 4,207. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight, the low around 63, mostly sunny near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early Saturday, then it'll be mostly sunny, high 77. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness, with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Let's pick up the story of Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella, Marine Corps commander, still serving, still active duty. Last August, he was one of the officers in charge of security for Kabul airport as Afghanistan fell apart around him, and the airfield he and his troops were protecting became the only way out for Afghans and Americans desperate to flee. Yesterday on the program, we heard what it was like to experience firsthand the chaos of August 15, 2021, the day the Taliban took over Kabul. It wasn't until a few days later, Richardella told me, that his phone began to buzz. I started receiving a lot of emails. I started receiving a lot of text messages. Uh, Many of these people, um, some top former officials, uh, some with a lot more rank on their their collar or or retired at this point, uh, reaching out to me, how they got my name and number, I don't know. Uh, Many peers of mine reaching out, hey, you need to look for this guy. This is his name. This is how many people he has. These are his family members. And it, it, it just became constant. I mean, all day, every day, people reaching out to you, asking for help. You know, about three to 5,000 people in a gate trying to get just a small family through was very tough. Uh, I did do uh, some, some of those missions. Uh, I would call them to help out in the middle of the night uh, where we, we would open a side door to a gate bring a family in after we had coordinated with that family and the people back here on how to signal, where to link up, when to come in. We bring them in and we take them to the bird immediately uh, to, to evacuate. Do you remember anybody in particular, an individual or a family who you were able to help? Uh, not by name, uh, but I, I can picture them right now uh, as we speak. Describe them to me. Yeah, there was, uh, there was a family, a gentleman who was an interpreter, My friends reached out to me, told me this was a good guy. He had all the necessary paperwork. He just couldn't get to the gate and he had his family with him. So middle of the night, uh, many of these people had had been outside the gate just trying to get in. 
uh, for five days or so with no food, no water. Yeah. Very tough situation. Uh, brought the family in. Uh, took a picture with them to send back to my friends just to verify that everything was good. And I drove them uh, with, I don't know, 10 people in a five-passenger SUV there, all sitting on top of each other, some sobbing, uh, some elated, and drove them straight to where they were going to be processed into the, into the system and then put them directly on, on the bird. That, that was very gratifying. It, it was very tough, very unrealistic to do for absolutely everyone. Uh, they just happened to be able to get to that point in the gate that, uh, that I needed them to get to so that we could grab them and bring them in. Anyone who haunts you, who you couldn't get out? <sighs> That's a good question, because I think this is what Marines struggle with. The combat aspect of this mission was not hard. This is what Marines train for. I think what people struggled with the most, both while we were there for the evacuation and even when we returned, because we are all sons and daughters. We're all brothers and sisters. We all have families. And this is what you were dealing with, was this just absolute crisis of humanity and looking in these people's eyes and them looking at you as their only way out because they truly believed they were going to die. And as we you know, watched women having babies in front of us or handing their babies over the gate because they knew they couldn't get in, uh, some people dying right in front of us from just absolute heat exhaustion and whatever medical condition they may have had. And then bringing families who more often than not, because they were usually large, uh, 10, 20, 30 people, uh, families would be separated quite often as you're coming through a very narrow portion in the gate and all, you know, all the families coming through these crowds that were very violent. Uh, we're breaking people apart and you bring kids in and they're crying for their parents who aren't there. Or you bring a mother in who's losing it because her son couldn't get through. Looking at these people, hearing the screams, the cries being clawed at and looking at these people in their eyes. And I think what was even tougher is that not all of these people were qualified to get onto our aircraft to be evacuated. So some of those people that we brought onto the base, we then had to escort off the base. And after you tell someone, once they're finally in the base, in your bubble of security, and then they don't clear because they don't have the right paperwork or whatever it may be, and then you have to then uh, take them off the base. Uh, that was very tough. Marines really struggled with that. Yeah, you told me how you train and prepare for every possible scenario going into a situation like this, and you're describing a situation that one couldn't possibly prepare for as, as a military officer, as a human being. No, uh, it, it, there's no way you could, you could ever think through that scenario. In fact, when we were training, you know, we, we, we trained every single day to do evacuation operations. You know, we had other Marines in our unit, you know, play the evacuees. <laughs> but once you get on the ground and you induce that panic and that chaos and that friction it's quite a different story, and there, there's no organization, there's no discipline, uh, and it's, it's, it's quite chaotic. You left Kabul on August 30th, is that right? Yes. What was that like, flying out and knowing this was how 20 years of war was, was going to end? <sighs> Mixed bag of emotions, to be honest with you. Uh, we had received a rocket attack on the base 
that morning. So uh, we were on high alert. Uh, but to know that this is how it was going to end, you know, the, the previous deployment I had done there, uh, the many friends that I'd seen, many different units deploy over there over the years, re really kind of defines the my generation, my career in a lot of ways uh, for a guy like me. Sure. It's, it's very tough to see it come to a close as it did. I wonder if on that day you got a little closer to understanding what an older generation of American service members and veterans might have felt. Um, and I'm thinking of the, my dad's generation who fought in Vietnam. And then many of them had the rest of their lives to wonder, you know, if they had fought a war that, that some would see that could be seen as a waste. I share that sentiment. I, um, uh... I felt closer to that generation in that moment than I ever have in my entire life. But as I would tell any one of those Vietnam veterans who I'd thank for their service uh, more strenuously now, uh, having a shared experience with them, as I would tell my Marines who look back on their experience a year ago, that they did well uh, given the circumstances, they saved lives, they helped good people, they hurt bad people, and they executed in an outstanding manner and kept their honor clean. That is Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella, who was leading a battalion of Marines in charge of security at Kabul airport when the Taliban took over Afghanistan last year. Colonel Richardella, thank you. Thank you very much, ma'am. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 77 degrees in Boston. At 429 ahead on All Things Considered, two Pakistani friends are trying to reunite loved ones who were separated during the partition 75 years ago by making viral videos. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free holiday is this weekend. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. As the number of unhoused people is on the rise, cities across the country are trying something new. Criminalizing camping, sleeping, sitting, lying, loitering, laws criminalizing living in vehicles, all of those have gone up by double or triple digit percentages over the past 10 years. I'm Kimberly Adams, cracking down on tent encampments. That's next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Attorney General Merrick Garland is seeking the release of the warrant that led to a search of former President Trump's resort in Florida. At a news conference, Garland noted that it was Trump, not the Justice Department, who made the Monday search public. Garland says the public deserves to understand the specific terms of the search, and he's asking a judge to unseal the warrant and the property receipt that resulted from that search. 
As Russia continues its assault on his nation, President Zelensky is proposing a resolution to the tensions surrounding Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. NPR's Yulian Haida has more. Zelensky joined a meeting of northern European defense ministers via video link, imploring them to do more to stop what he calls, quote, Russia's nuclear blackmail against the entire continent. None of us can stop the wind from carrying nuclear fallout, but we are all capable of joining together to stop a state sponsor of terrorism, he says. Zelensky asked the attendees to levy sanctions against Russia's nuclear industry, pressure neutral countries to take sides against Russia, and supply more powerful weapons to Ukraine. Russia, for its part, claims Ukraine threatens the plant and asked for international regulators to monitor the situation on Russia's terms. Yulian Haidar, NPR News, Kyiv. Gasoline prices are still higher than they were a year ago, but they've now fallen from the summer's earlier record highs. Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspective says that's a good start. With falling gas prices and potentially some relief on food prices in the pipeline, consumers will have a little bit more money to spend on other goods and services, and that's good for the broader economy. The national average price at the pump for unleaded today was $3.99. Wall Street, the Dow held on to positive territory today, closing up 27 points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. New Hampshire authorities are now investigating the disappearance of a five-year-old girl as a homicide. Harmony Montgomery has been missing since 2019. State Attorney General John Formella says law enforcement now believes she was murdered in December of that year. At this point, while Harmony's remains have not yet been located, we do have multiple sources of investigative information, including just recently confirmed biological evidence that have led us to this difficult and tragic conclusion. Police are asking for anyone with information to contact a 24-hour tip line dedicated to the investigation. No one has been charged in her killing. Governor Charlie Baker signed a big climate and clean energy bill into law today. Supporters of the law say it should help build an equitable and robust offshore wind industry here. It will help residents afford electric vehicles, reshape the future of natural gas in the state, and allow 10 municipalities to experiment with banning fossil fuels in new construction. More now from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. This law comes less than two years after Massachusetts enacted a different big climate law. The first one set ambitious goals for cutting carbon emissions in transportation, electricity, buildings, but it lacked a lot of details about how the state could achieve those goals. That's according to Senator Mike Barrett, who is a key architect of both laws. So we had the basic roadmap sketched out, but we didn't have any implementation tools. This year's bill is about getting us down to all those emission limits we need to hit. A central element of the law is equity. It's designed to make the green economy accessible to all and reverse some longstanding environmental injustices. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The governor also signed a cannabis reform bill into law today, but he did veto one section. The law creates a social equity trust fund to encourage participation in the industry by communities that have historically been harmed by marijuana criminalization. The measure also clarifies procedures for permitting on-site consumption of cannabis products. The governor vetoed a section requiring the state to recommend ways to make medical marijuana permissible at K-12 schools in the state.
Sports, the Red Sox host the Orioles tonight over at Fenway. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 63 degrees, mostly sunny near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early Saturday, then it'll be mostly sunny. The highs near 77 degrees. Sunday will be nice, sunny. 82 will be the high. Partly sunny on Monday with a chance of showers in the afternoon. The highs will be around 80 degrees. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It has been 75 years since British-ruled India was carved into two new states, independent India and Pakistan, a homeland for Muslims. Partition of the subcontinent in 1947 was violent, and it led to one of the biggest migrations of the 20th century. An estimated 10 million people fled across the newly drawn borders, Hindus and Sikhs to India, and Muslims to Pakistan. Perhaps a million people were killed, families were torn apart, and decades on, two Pakistani friends are trying to reunite loved ones before it's too late. And they're doing it by making viral videos. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Barewala, Pakistan. In a video watched hundreds of thousands of times, an elderly brother and sister hug each other like they never want to let go. They're at a border crossing between India and Pakistan. It's the first time they've seen each other since childhood. They were separated 75 years ago. The brother is Sikh with the black turban and long grey beard. He's come from India. His sister is a Muslim. She wears a pink headscarf. She's Pakistani. They were both born into a Sikh family who fled to India during partition. But their mother was killed and that elderly woman was just a baby left behind with her dead mother. She was found by a Muslim couple who raised her as their own. They were reunited by two Pakistani men who've gained a reputation for finding loved ones lost during partition. The men are Nasser Dillon and Papinder Singh. Singh tells me, In the next five or ten years, these people will pass on. We want to bring peace to people who've held this pain in their hearts for 75 years. For the past six years, Singh and Dylan have been doing just that. They create videos of people talking about how they lost their family members during the chaos of partition. Those videos are viewed by millions of people who then, in the luckiest cases, help track down those missing family members so they can reunite. The pair produce their videos out of Dylan's garage. This is the studio. They show me some of their videos. They've got more than 96 million views. Singh says the videos go viral because many Pakistanis and Indians want to heal the wounds of partition. The partition happened, but we can move on and show each other love. It's a love echoed in the friendship of the two men. Singh is from Pakistan's Sikh minority 
Dylan from the Muslim majority. They bonded years ago over their interest in partition history. And with every video that goes viral, more hopeful families get in touch. Now they're trying to find the brother of Sharifa Bibi. They've made a video of her story and uploaded it to their YouTube channel. Sharifa Bibi guesses she's more than 80 years old. <laughs> Sharifa Bibi's brother got lost when her family were fleeing their village in India. Their mother was holding his hand, but she had to let go of him as rioters demanded the gold ring of her finger. He must have got scared and run away. My relatives looked for him even in the canal where the rioters tossed the bodies of dead Muslims. We met in the town of Burewala, where Sharifa Bibi's family built a new life. But she says her mother never got over the loss. My mother was always crying for her lost son. And her son was crying for her. He tried to find her. All right, now Sharifa Bibi's in the to help us understand, Sharifa Bibi's family drives us through cornfields to a nearby village. To meet an elderly man called Muhammad Asghar. We greet him and he says, Sharifa Bibi looks just like her brother, the one she hasn't seen in 75 years. Here's how he knows. Muhammad Asghar used to be a horse and cart driver, and around 35 years ago, as he waited for customers outside the Burewala train station, he met a man from India who was asking if anybody knew his family. He cried to me that he lost his family in partition and that he was adopted by a rich Hindu couple. Asghar says the man told him his name was Ranjit, but that he was born a Muslim and believed his family had settled in the area. Asghar took pity on the man and invited him home. For about two weeks, they clip-clop from village to village. We went to all the village mosques and told people, there is a man here from India and he's looking for his family. He lost them in partition. Did anybody here lose a son? About a dozen families came forward, but they said, no, this isn't our boy. After a few weeks of searching, Ranjit lost hope and packed his bags. But as he was leaving... Ranjit told me, I work as a vet at the Delhi Race Club. If you ever have news about my family, come to India. Just wait till 2 p.m. when I finish work and meet me at the gate. At around that time, Sharifa Bibi heard about the man from India. A woman told me he's looking for his brothers and sisters. Sharifa Bibi tracked down Asghar and rushed over with her parents. But Ranjit had already left. She says her mother collapsed. She saw some socks on the floor. Ranjit had left them behind. She snatched them and said, did these belong to my son? Then she buried her face in them. My father did too. And they wept. But for the first time in decades, they also had hope. Sharifa Bibi says her mother was like a woman revived. My mother swelled with hope. She said it was like her breasts filled with milk again. 
Sharifa Bibi's sister and husband went to the New Delhi racing track to try find him. But as Pakistanis in India, they were treated with suspicion. When my sister returned empty-handed, my parents were broken. They died a few years later, crying over their son. As we sit with Azhar, he tells us something that Sharifa Bibi has never heard before, that this was the second time that her brother tried to find his family in Burewala. Azhar says during partition, after Ranjit let go of his mother's hand, He followed other Muslims fleeing to Pakistan. They came to this train station. He slept here for a few nights. Azhar says Ranjit remembered the name of the station. He thought it might be important to his story, but he couldn't remember how he ended up back in India. Sharifa Bibi is overcome as she hears this and faints. Are you okay, Pani? They call for water and Sharifa Bibi revives. And even though decades have passed since she last heard of her brother, she says, My brother, you cried for us and we cried for you. She calls out, Are you listening, brother? If you're listening, please come and see me. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Burewala. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Small businesses have paid hundreds of millions of dollars to cyber criminals in just the last year. And now a group of experts has released a blueprint full of advice on how to prepare for a possible ransomware attack. We're joined now by NPR's cybersecurity correspondent, Jenna McLaughlin, and she's going to help us break down the findings. Hi, Jenna. Hey there. So can you, we just start off with the basics here. What is ransomware? And I'm also hoping you can give us a sense of the scope of the problem. Sure. So ransomware refers to a very popular kind of cybercrime where hackers break into your system, lock it down, and demand payment for the key to unlock it all. It's really actually become a bustling industry. Some groups work on getting access to systems and they sell that access, while others will write malware or malicious code. The ransomware task force, which was formed in 2021, including stakeholders from government, academia, think tank, and the private sector actually put together a lot of data about this problem. According to their surveys, victims paid over $600 million to these cyber criminals in just 2021. Wow. And, yeah, 70% of the attacks targeted organizations with 500 or fewer employees. Okay, that is really striking, but what did they suggest then that businesses do about this? So it's not so easy to answer since cyber criminals are always adapting, but the task force partnered with the Center for Internet Security to take a stab at it. There's a timeline of actionable things that companies should do. First, it's really important that there's a deep understanding at the company of what your network actually looks like and how it functions on a normal day. Uh, It sounds simple, but here's the thing. Experts told me that criminals typically know their victims' networks a lot better than they do. Here's Valicia Stacchetti from the Center for Internet Security. There are a lot of attackers out there that I'm sure know the software much, much more comprehensive than probably some other folks, which is not good. And that's why we need this kind of work to make our defenses more resilient. Okay, make our defenses more resilient. Yes, but on a practical level, what does that actually mean? So Stichetti said that her top piece of advice is to use multi-factor authentication. It's a fancy way of saying several methods of proving you are who you say you are. So not just a password, but also an authenticator application, a physical token, biometrics. 
You also need to keep your software up to date. Keep an eye on patches that become available, close up doors and windows that criminals like to break in through essentially. And train your employees, make sure they know the basics. The authors of the report recognize that sometimes cyber criminals will get in anyway, even if you're doing everything right. If they do, companies need to know what their plan is ahead of time. And they need to have backups that are encrypted and not connected to their primary network. All right, so I do not own a business, but none of this sounds cheap. I imagine that if someone has a small or medium-sized business, they might not have adequate resources to handle this. And as you point out, these criminals are demanding millions of dollars in some cases. Yeah, that's a huge concern. So most of the action items in the report are meant to be pretty simple and affordable. But when it comes to actually paying ransoms, that's often when cyber insurance comes in. A new survey from BlackBerry and Corvus Insurance revealed that a lot of businesses are concerned their policies won't cover the cost of the damages, that their premiums are going up, and that they aren't actually sure what their policies even cover. I talked to one of the authors of the blueprint who comes from the insurance industry, and he says that insurance companies should be focused on proactively requiring companies to have some of these safeguards in place to help defend, but also limit really costly payouts in the first place. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin, thank you. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 77 degrees in Boston at 449. Ahead on All Things Considered, Costco is a one-stop shop for essentials like coffee, toilet paper, and now name brand clothing. A growing community of Costco fans is sharing their favorite affordable fashion finds on social media. That's ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight. The low's around 63 degrees, mostly sunny near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early Saturday, then it'll be mostly sunny. The high's around 77. Sunday will be sunny. 82 degrees will be the high. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family owned and operated, offering brand name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Gentle Dental with a mission to create healthy, confident smiles for life. Learn more about braces this summer at GentleDental.com braces. And Backbay Life Science Advisors, providing strategic consulting and investment banking to global leaders in biopharma, medtech, and health tech. BBLSA.com. The nation's meatpacking companies skirted COVID safety regulations, and they did it with the White House's help, according to a little-known congressional report. There was this collusion between the Trump administration and the industry to sacrifice workers and their communities so that this industry could make money. So how'd they get away with it? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Costco is famous for its hot dogs and jumbo-sized products, but the big box store is making waves on TikTok right now for its fashionable clothing. This week's best Costco fashion finds, the Lole sweatshirt and jogger sets are already on sale, $14.99 for the pants and $18. These Columbia skirts are so cute and they're only $30. It comes in so hey shoppers, soft doesn't even begin to describe these Eddie Bauer quarter zips. You compare them to <laughs> the search term Costco clothing finds has 1.7 billion views on TikTok. 
And though Costco declined to speak with us about the phenomenon, we caught up with fashion writer Frances Sola Santiago. There is a lot of hype about, um, you know, shopping at Costco. She wrote a piece for Refinery29 called The Unexpected Appeal of Costco Fashion. I think a lot of people are just really interested in the affordability, um, the convenience, um, and then kind of taking part of this hype, which is kind of a very interesting phenomenon for Costco. Jennifer Maldonado is one of the TikTokers creating that hype under the handle Costco Couture. You heard her earlier talking about those oh-so-soft Eddie Bauer quarter zips. Now that people are working from home and a little bit more budget conscious, they don't want to spend a lot of money on you know, expensive items. They want to be comfortable. They want to know that they're getting a good deal. And they want to know that what they're wearing is also fashion forward, too. And if you were skeptical about that fashion forward part. A lot of my clothes that I wear, I get compliments on every single day. And I always say it's from Costco. And I get the same response, like a blank look on their face, like, really? Costco? Heck yeah. Heck yeah. And as the 100-year-old fashion icon Iris Apfel once said, fashion you can buy, but style you possess. Mary Rogers was famous for her musical Once Upon a Mattress, but she may have been most famous for being the daughter of Broadway composer Richard Rogers. And with that kind of lineage, she had an insider's view of some of theater's biggest stories as they played out behind the curtain. And though she died in 2014, her memoirs are out this week. Titled Shy, The Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers, they are co-authored by New York Times theater critic Jesse Green, and Jeff London chatted with him about the book. The product of hundreds of hours Jesse Green spent with Mary Rogers, the book has extensive footnotes on just about every page. But far from being dry, they're entertaining. There's an asterisk after the very first word, daddy. And the note explains, quote, if you've read this far, you probably know that daddy was Richard Rogers, 1902 to 1979, composer, womanizer, alcoholic, genius. What I wanted was her voice. Green says he didn't want to clog the narrative with a lot of descriptions of the people and shows Mary Rogers was talking about. I felt if people are going to read this book, what I want them to get is the experience of sitting in that room and listening to her. I don't want it to read like prose. I want it to read like dialogue or monologue, really. That's Carol Burnett singing the song Shy from Mary Rogers' most famous musical, Once Upon a Mattress. And Shy, the book, is filled with alarmingly outspoken stories about some of the most prominent figures from the golden age of musical theater. Not just Daddy, but his collaborators, Lorenz Hard and Oscar Hammerstein, director Hal Prince and lyricist Sheldon Harnick, both of whom she dated, and Stephen Sondheim. Jesse Green says she evokes a whole world of privilege, not unlike Jane Austen's novels. The restrictions, the opportunities, the conniving, the trying to find love without giving yourself away too cheaply, the mistakes, all of that was a great richness of material that she would just like pour out as I sat there typing madly. 
So the book is filled with stories about the difficult relationship she had with her ice-cold parents, her first marriage to an older man with whom she had three children and who turned out not only to be gay but physically abusive, the affairs she had before she married her second husband. Green says... There's a lot in this book that I think people sort of know or think they know, but they don't. And then there's a few things that I think are going to be shockers to people. One of them, her relationship with Stephen Sondheim, who she met when they were teenagers through her dad's partner, Oscar Hammerstein. He was, in a way, the love of her life. And, of course, I knew that, but I thought it was only platonic. That has turned out not to be the case. Sort of. Green says she and the gay composer-lyricist had always been great friends, but at one point... She told me, something I have never read or heard before, that they had, briefly, what she called a trial marriage, where they slept together in the same bed in a kind of nightmarish confusion about what they were doing, which was nothing. <laughs> but trying to make some go of what was clearly a very powerful and deep and non-sexual relationship, at least from his side. And eventually, even she had to say, no, this is not going to work. What do his friends call him Lillian? And I hear at the end of the week, he's leaving to start a boutique. They did, however, write some songs together, like this one from The Mad Show in 1966. Rogers had a frustrating career as a theatrical songwriter. There were flops, there were shows that were never produced, there were constant rumors that her songs were ghostwritten by her father, which Green says she found amusing. But at a certain point... She just decided, I have a lot of things I can do, and I'll try something else. Perhaps as compensation for her difficult childhood, she threw herself into parenting. She had three more children with her second husband, one of whom is Tony Award-winning composer Adam Gettle, though she also had the heartbreak of losing one child to an acute case of asthma. And Mary Rogers had a second career writing children's books. One of which, Freaky Friday, is among the most successful of children's books of that period, and has itself been turned into a musical several times, one time by her. She wrote some really lovely music for that. I'm appalled by someone and enthralled by someone at the same time. As a last act, Roger served on the board of many major institutions, including as chair of the Juilliard School. Jesse Green says in that role, she got to support generations of young musicians, actors, and writers. She was invested in the world of talent, not so much in the expression of her own. And that's what made her a great dame and a, a philanthropist with real heart and a wonderful person to be around. And Green says he was lucky to spend all those years sitting in her living room while she told alarmingly outspoken stories. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Culligan Water since 1936. A local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. 
More at Culligan.com. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 77 degrees at a minute before 5 o'clock. Ahead at 5 o'clock, the second hour of All Things Considered, the CDC is working on new COVID-19 guidance for the beginning of the school year. It seems to be going to look a whole lot like the back to school before the pandemic. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 63 degrees, mostly sunny, near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early on Saturday. The, uh, then it'll be mostly sunny. The highs around 77 degrees. Right now it is 77 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. A morning edition host, Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There's always a push and pull. I think our our recommendations probably move closer to the way we treat influenza. The CDC will be releasing their new COVID guidelines for schools soon. They could look a lot like the guidelines from before the pandemic. It's Thursday, August 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. We'll take a look at what guidance the CDC is considering. Also ahead, despite a lot of economic uncertainty, most companies in the S&P 500 did better in the second quarter than Wall Street expected. But there were signs the economy is starting to slow down. And we'll hear from a former Justice Department prosecutor about the DOJ motion to unseal the search warrant for Donald Trump's Florida home. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Justice Department is asking a court to unseal the warrant the FBI received before searching the Florida estate of former President Donald Trump earlier this week. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland in a brief appearance today confirming the request citing substantial public interest in the matter. He also confirmed the search was carried out at his request, so he declined to go into detail. Federal law, long-standing department rules, and our ethical obligations prevent me from providing further details as to the basis of the search at this time. The Justice Department has been investigating the discovery earlier this year of classified White House records at Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Point or Palm Beach, Florida. Federal investigators with Justice and the National Archives subpoenaed the former president in the spring to turn over materials they believed were taken improperly. The Arctic is warming nearly four times faster than the Earth as a whole. That's according to a new study. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports it's quicker than scientists previously thought. Computer models of climate change generally suggest that the Arctic is warming about twice as fast as the planet as a whole. But a new study suggests that's a serious underestimate. 
The research by scientists in Finland, published in the journal Communications Earth and Environment, finds the Arctic has warmed nearly four times faster than the planet overall since 1979. That's bad news for all humans, even if you live far from the Arctic, says climate scientist Richard Davey, who was not part of the new study. What happens in the Arctic uh, doesn't just stay in the Arctic. Weather patterns around the world are changing as the Arctic heats up. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Iran says charges by the U.S. that an Iranian plotted to kill former National Security Advisor John Bolton are ridiculous and baseless. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports on the allegation which came from the Department of Justice. Iran's foreign ministry says the baseless charges should not be a pretext for any action against an Iranian citizen. The U.S. suggests that the Iranian may have been motivated to murder Bolton in retaliation for the killing of Revolutionary Guards Commander Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by a U.S. drone strike in January 2020. NPR's Peter Kenyon. For the first time in more than five months, prices at the pump have fallen below $4 a gallon for regular gas. That's a drop of 15 cents a gallon in just a week and 68 cents a gallon over the past month. The average price for self-serve regular gasoline peaked just over $5 a gallon in mid-June, though motorists in California and Hawaii are still paying more than $5 a gallon. The cheapest gas is in Texas and some other states in the South and the Midwest. Stocks which had gained ground on continued optimism over easing inflation moved back down just before the close ending of the session mix. The Dow was up 27 points, but the Nasdaq fell 74 points. The S&P 500 dropped two points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The state's entire congressional delegation is calling on Governor Baker to declare out the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency in Massachusetts. According to the CDC, there are more than 10,000 confirmed cases of monkeypox in the U.S. Massachusetts has more than 200 cases. The state's congressional delegation calls the virus a significant threat to Massachusetts communities. It says declaring it a public health emergency would allow the state to respond to the outbreak more efficiently and with more tools. The governor's office has not yet commented on the delegation's request. Restaurants along a portion of Commercial and Bradford Streets in Provincetown have been ordered closed due to a sewer emergency. All public restrooms will also be closed for the next two days. Porta-potties will be set up throughout the town instead. Residents in the area are also being asked to reduce their water use and flush the toilet only when necessary. Town officials estimate it'll take at least 48 hours to repair the sewer issues. The problems began on Tuesday when thunderstorms caused a power outage and an electrical problem at a facility that helps run the sewer system. Governor Baker has signed an offshore wind and climate bill that lawmakers sent to his desk last week. The new law encourages the widespread use of electric vehicles and accelerates the state's transition to renewable energy sources with the goal of achieving net zero emissions by 2050. It also boosts the state's investments in the growing offshore wind industry. Governor Baker has also signed a sports betting bill into law, but one expert says it's not exactly game on for sports wagering in Massachusetts. Professor Richard McGowan is with the Carroll School of Management at Boston College. He says he doesn't see any way legalized sports bets will be placed in Massachusetts by the start of next month's NFL season. It'll probably take around three or four months for the Gaming Commission to finally set up the rules for sports gambling. So uh, 
I would probably say the beginning of December. So it'll be near the end of the NFL season. State lawmakers estimate tax revenue from sports betting will bring $60 million into Massachusetts each year. Just half of that revenue will go into the state's general fund. About a quarter of it will go to Massachusetts cities and towns in the form of local aid. For the first time this year, parts of Massachusetts are under extreme drought conditions. The U.S. Drought Monitor says 25% of the state is in an extreme drought. That includes the immediate Boston area, the North Shore, and the South Coast. The Worcester area, South Shore, and the Cape are all in severe drought conditions. Sports, the New England Patriots running back James White is calling it a career. The 30-year-old announced his retirement this morning. White played eight seasons in the NFL, all with the Pats, and won three Super Bowls in that time. He suffered a season-ending hip injury last year and has not participated in any preseason practices this year. The Patriots, meanwhile, play their first preseason game tonight. They'll take on the New York Giants in Foxborough. Kickoff is set for 7 p.m. Red Sox are also hosting the... Orioles tonight over at Fenway. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 63 degrees. Mostly sunny, near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early on Saturday. Then it'll be mostly sunny. The highs near 77 degrees. Sunday will be sunny. 82 will be the high. Partly sunny on Monday. Chance of showers in the afternoon. The high around 80. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. The CDC is no longer recommending tests to stay as the standard in schools or quarantining for close contacts to curb COVID-19. The change in recommendations is part of a larger relaxation and guidance that was rolled out today. It is a simpler approach that aligns with what many states are currently doing. NPR's Ping Wong joins us now to discuss Hi, Ping. Hi, Juana. So the CDC is relaxing its guidance on quarantining and testing to stay, as I mentioned. For the parents and caregivers out there, I've got to ask you, how is this going to play out in a practical sense? Well, um, as you mentioned, what they announced today was that they're no longer recommending that people who get exposed to the virus quarantine. And remember, that's when someone that you've just hung out with tests positive for COVID, but you yourself have no symptoms and you feel fine. So what they're saying is that nobody who feels fine needs to stay home and wait to see if they develop symptoms. Everyone can go about their lives. And that includes children in schools. That's why they're ending the test to stay program as well. Remember, this was a program that said kids who got exposed to COVID but weren't vaccinated could still go to school so long as they felt fine and tested negative. So this, along with a few of the other changes announced today, shows that the CDC no longer thinks that it's super important to find and stop asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic cases. What they're really focusing instead on is people who are actively sick and trying to reduce serious illness. Okay, so what do you know about the timing? Why are they making these changes right now? Well, they're basically telling most people that given the situation in the U.S., they can kind of chill a little bit when it comes to COVID. Dr. Greta Massetti, a top CDC official, says most people in the U.S. have some level of protection against the virus. Currently, high levels of population immunity due to vaccination and previous infection and the many tools that we have available to protect people um, from severe illness and death have put us in a different place with COVID-19. 
She estimates that 95% of people have either been vaccinated or have recovered from COVID, so that's why they've stopped making policies that differentiate between those who have shots and those who don't. Still, as we all know now, prior immunity doesn't mean that you can't catch the virus and get sick from it, just that hopefully you'll have a mild case. So the CDC's guidance still emphasizes isolating when you are sick and masking to prevent spread that goes onward. Okay, what kind of responses are you hearing about this from this point? Well, Dr. Marcus Plascia, he's chief medical officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, and he says it makes sense to him. It's a shift towards individuals making their own decisions about their levels of risk and how they want to deal with it. And I think that is consistent because where we are with the pandemic right now, I don't really think there are many state or local jurisdictions that are feeling that they're going to need to start making mandates about you know, social interactions and wearing masks. He says this is how public health has been dealing with flu for decades now. You know, they encourage people to get vaccinated. They tell people what they can do to avoid getting it or spreading it, but they're not trying to stop every case. So is that where we are right now, treating COVID like we treat the flu? Well, it, it's where we're headed, even if we're not fully there yet. You know, it's something we've heard from pediatricians, school principals, epidemiologists. We just have got to figure out a way to go about our lives that's safe enough. And that does not mean that we're actually there yet. You know, one million people have died from COVID in the past three years, and that's a death toll that would take more than 20 years or more for flu. And not everyone is equally vulnerable to COVID. So this puts a burden on people who are older, immunocompromised, have underlying conditions to protect themselves from COVID. But with the immunity that people have, with the vaccines and treatments, health officials are saying that it's time to uh, get to a place where COVID doesn't dominate all of our lives. NPR's Peng Huang, thank you. You're welcome. Climate change is causing the Arctic to heat up extremely quickly. New research published today finds the Arctic Circle is warming nearly four times faster than Earth as a whole, a lot faster than scientists previously thought. It's yet another reminder that humans must dramatically reduce greenhouse gases to avoid even more destructive climate change. Money in the Inflation Reduction Act could help you, yes, you, contribute to that goal. That is, if it passes the House as it's expected to. NPR's Laura Benchoff explains how the bill would make it cheaper for more Americans to cut their climate warming emissions. Most of the Inflation Reduction Act's climate benefits would come from changes that are just too big for individuals to make, like building more wind farms. But Jamal Lewis, with the electrification nonprofit Rewiring America, says it would help with things we can control. Household decisions that you and I make on the machines that we choose to cook our food, heat and cool our homes, and get us from place to place. He says replacing an old appliance is an opportunity. It's a chance to lower home energy costs and carbon pollution by switching to a more energy-efficient model. The Inflation Reduction Act would set aside billions of dollars for appliance rebate programs so that switching is a better deal. For example, if you replace your old furnace with a heat pump, you could get up to $8,000 off the sticker price. Lewis says these discounts are designed to put the technology within reach of more people especially lower and middle income households. The rebate actually means just a discount that reduces the point of sale cost. There's also money to retrofit homes so they waste less energy, says Lowell Unger with the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. It may be air sealing because there are drafts coming in. It may be that more insulation is needed in the attic. 
and there's money to start capturing your own renewable energy. President of the Solar Energy Industries Association, Abigail Ross Hopper, says the bill's more than 10-year tax credits for residential solar and energy storage are a game changer. It really strengthens the grid for everybody. So even though one individual homeowner made a decision to invest in a solar and storage system, their neighbors are going to benefit. One drawback is that you have to own your home. There is money in the act to encourage retrofits of rental properties, but they tend to need a developer or a landlord to be involved. Finally, there's your car. The bill's electric vehicle tax credit is a mixed bag. John Helveston, a professor at George Washington University, says part of the credit is only available for cars whose batteries are made from raw materials from the U.S. or its free trade partners. That's tying the hands of automakers because some of those batteries materials, they're just not available in North America yet. That means the full amount, up to $7,500 for a new EV, might be unavailable. But Helveston says prospective buyers shouldn't despair because they should still be able to get some of that money. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. At first glance, American companies seem to be doing all right in the face of high inflation and rising interest rates. But underneath the surface, there are warning signs, and the country's top executives are getting nervous about what's to come. NPR's David Gura joins us now to explain. Hi, David. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what are companies seeing right now? So companies have this unique insight into how the economy is doing and where it's headed. And in recent weeks, most of America's biggest ones have reported earnings. They've told us how they did over the last three months. And Many of them did better than Wall Street expected, and markets have rallied as a result of that. This is remarkable because of all the challenges they've faced. High inflation, which did show signs of easing last month, even though prices rose at a pace of 8.5% year over year. Federal Reserve has been hiking interest rates aggressively. Then on top of that, there were all these other headwinds, including the fallout from the war in Ukraine, supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. So companies have done pretty well despite all of that. But executives are coming across on calls with analysts as very cautious. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, says he sees a moment like this as clarifying. It's a chance to digest and make sure we are working on the right things as a company. Now, while Alphabet and other companies digest what's happening, many businesses are already taking action, Elsa, as they brace for an economic downturn. Action. Okay, so what steps are they taking? Well, first and foremost, they're cutting advertising. That's a bellwether because companies usually target their marketing budgets before they cut anything else. And the pullback that we're seeing is hitting media companies pretty hard. The New York Times company saw digital ad revenue decline. BuzzFeed warned recession fears will put pressure on its advertising business. This is also hurting social media companies like Meta, Facebook's parent company, which relies on ads to make money. Its revenue fell for the first time ever. On Snap's earning call, its chief financial officer, Derek Anderson, said the economic uncertainty is crippling. We're seeing these various headwinds put pressure on the earnings of a wide variety of companies, and this is directly impacting the demand for advertising. Well, beyond ads, are companies like going as far as announcing layoffs now? Well, the latest jobs data have shown the labor market is still strong, but what's potentially worrisome here is some companies are cutting staff, especially in the tech sector. The e-commerce giant Shopify just laid off 10% of its workforce. Robinhood, the maker of a stock trading app that became really popular at the beginning of the pandemic, has cut about 30%. Now, other companies we've talked about, Alphabet, Meta, they're hiring fewer new workers. And Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, said the car maker is cutting spending and limiting hiring right now with an eye to the future. 
we have modeled several downturn scenarios and we are prepared to take more deliberate action when and if necessary. And we're seeing some companies, including Bed Bath & Beyond, take a harder look at their expenses. But David, what about consumers here? I mean, like the people giving their money to these businesses. What are companies even saying about how their customers are holding up? Well, so far, people have continued to spend, although they are making adjustments as prices go up. Higher gasoline prices have been hard on households. They've come down a bit. The nationwide average price for a gallon of regular gas is now back below $4, more than a dollar less than the record high in June. A couple of weeks ago, Walmart, of course, one of the world's largest retailers, sent a letter to its shareholders. And in that letter, it said its customers are spending more money on food. And we just learned that in July, food prices were up more than 13% from a year ago. Yeah. Because Walmart's customers are spending more money on food, they're spending less money on other stuff Walmart sells, especially clothing. Walmart said that this is going to weigh on its bottom line, not just for this quarter, but also for the entire year. We're going to get Walmart's earnings next week, by the way. So we'll get a new indication, Elsa, of how one of America's biggest companies is doing. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you, David. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 77 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from a former Justice Department prosecutor about the motion to unseal the search warrant for Donald Trump's Florida home. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In business news, Massachusetts retailers are preparing for a potential boost in business during the annual sales tax holiday weekend. The state will waive the 6.25% sales tax on many products this Saturday and Sunday. The waiver applies to items up to $2,500. It does not apply to cards, boats, gasoline, alcohol, tobacco, or meals. On Wall Street, stocks were mixed today. The Dow finished up 27 points at 33,337. NASDAQ fell 75 points to close at 12,780. And the S&P 500 down three points, closing at 4,207. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 63 degrees, mostly sunny, near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early Saturday, then mostly sunny, a high of 77. Right now it is 77 in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Ever since former President Trump announced that his home in Florida had been searched by FBI agents on Mondays, his supporters and detractors alike have had one question. Why? 
Today, Attorney General Merrick Garland acknowledged that public interest. He said that the Justice Department has asked a federal court in Florida to unseal the warrant for that search, as well as a property receipt of what was taken from Mar-a-Lago. Garland also said that he personally approved the search earlier this week, and he defended the work of the FBI and the Justice Department from charges of partisan bias. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. And now we're going to bring in Andrew Weissman to help us understand. He is a former Justice Department prosecutor and a professor at the NYU School of Law. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. So, Andrew, what is your top takeaway after watching today's developments? Well, I think that Merrick Garland did something very wise, uh, which is that he stayed within the bounds of Justice Department rules, which is to speak through court filings. But he basically called Donald Trump's bluff because he said, look, you were the one who spoke about this search, not us. And we're perfectly happy to have the search warrant and the inventory of what was found during the search made public. And so we're making a motion to the court uh, to have that happen. But we will also provide you notice and an opportunity to be heard so that you can weigh in with the court as to whether you consent or whether you oppose it. Meaning that it respects Donald Trump's rights and civil liberties if he wants to oppose it. Um, but it makes it very hard for Donald Trump to actually take that position because he has been touting how uh, outrageous this is and it's, uh, it's uh, and been making all of these claims. And so if he's not willing to have this made public, it's going to look really foolish and he'll have egg on his face. So I think it was a very smart move that stayed within the confines of the Justice Department rules, which is to uh, not speak about a ongoing investigation um, and uh, to be very circumspect about ongoing matters. So if the search warrant as well as the property receipt are made public, what could we learn from them? And generally speaking, I know we don't know what is in these specific documents, but what information do these types of documents generally contain? So um, those are great uh, questions. The document that we really want to see is the underlying affidavit. That is the FBI agent swearing under oath what the facts are that support the probable cause for the search warrant. Um, that is probable cause for there being uh, evidence of a crime at Mar-a-Lago. Um, as I understand it, that is not one of the documents that um, is being sought to be unsealed. That being said, though, the warrant itself um, very often lists the crimes that are being investigated. This It should also list exactly where the agents can search and cannot search. Um, the Attorney General today in his announcement uh, alluded to that, that, this, that it was very circumscribed as to where exactly they could go. Um, and it also lists what exactly they can look for. Um, and more than that, the inventory will also um, provide a list of what was found uh, during the search. Now, it won't be document by document, but that should be very helpful in identifying for the public 
um, that there was um, material there um, and presumably it will be material of a classified nature that Donald Trump was not entitled to have uh, in his possession. And that really is the key question, which is why Donald Trump had classified information as a private citizen uh, in his premises and didn't return it. Um, so um, I think we'll learn certainly a lot more than, than where we are now. Um, but we won't, we won't, without that underlying affidavit, get all of the answers that I think everyone uh, is looking for. The remarks that we heard from Attorney General Merrick Garland today, they were brief in nature, but one thing that struck out to me, given the fact that, as you said, the agency is known for speaking through the work, through court filings, is that he said that he personally signed off on this search. Is How significant is that? You know, I think um, it's obviously significant that something uh, rises to his level. But I think before he said that, I think all of us uh, who had worked in the department were pretty confident okay. that the attorney general would sign off on something like this. Um, I do think one thing he said was stood out to me, which is um, he made a point of saying not just that he stood up for the integrity of people at the department, including the FBI, but he made a point of saying that Donald Trump's attorney was on site during the mm. search. And both of those things were a subtle way of his saying all of these suggestions that the FBI planted evidence is hogwash um, because his own attorney was present during the search. And the implication there is then that if the attorney was present, it, it couldn't have been, that Trump could not have been caught off guard then, yes? It couldn't have been caught off guard. And it's hardly the case that the FBI is going to start planting evidence in the right, right in front of defense attorney. Do you think that the documents that we may see, depending on what happens with the court, will tell us anything about the risks to former President Trump per potentially being charged with a crime? Um, I, I actually don't. Um, uh, you know, I don't think it will give us enough information. Um, I, it's possible, um, but I, I don't think without that underlying affidavit, we'll have um, that sense. Um, you know, I've always thought that this was a case where what was really paramount to the Department of Justice was getting their hands back on highly sensitive classified documents and that a, only a secondary issue was whether a criminal case would be made against Donald Trump or anyone else. I could see the overriding interest here being one of national security, that mm -hmm. these documents were so sensitive um, that they had to be repatriated um, and could not be left in a place like Mar-a-Lago where um, you know, lots of people have access to it. In fact, there have been, uh, just recently, there was a case of mm -hmm. a Chinese spy uh, trying to gain access to Mar-a-Lago. I'm going to ask you one more question here. We've got about 30 seconds left. The judge wants to know by 3 p.m. tomorrow if Trump objects to unsealing the warrant, an option that he has, even though he's announced that his estate had been searched. Any predictions on how the former president may respond? Uh, I think it would be very hard for him to oppose it. I do expect that the judge will rule uh, very quickly on this. Um, these are the kinds of motions when the government makes it's, mm. it's pro forma, and they're usually granted okay. in very short order. All right. Andrew Weissman is a former Justice Department prosecutor and FBI general counsel who worked on the Mueller investigation. Thanks for your time. Thank you.
This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 78 degrees in Boston at just at uh, 5.30. I had more All Things Considered here on WBUR. I didn't get any of that as a choice. I got sex and then I got pregnant and I got to raise that child in poverty. And I don't want like my daughter to be like, oh, mom regrets having me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I didn't get a say. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. At the Justice Department today, Attorney General Merrick Garland did not take questions and gave only limited comments about the FBI search Monday of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. He did call on the courts to unseal the warrant involved in an effort to clarify the motivation for the FBI search. The department filed the motion to make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. Garland told reporters he personally authorized the warrant as part of an ongoing probe following the discovery of classified White House records at the Trump Florida home earlier this year. A civil trial tied to the Flint water crisis has ended in a mistrial. Michigan Radio Steve Carmody reports from Flint. The judge declared the mistrial after the jury sent a note saying they risked physical and emotional harm if they continued deliberating. The eight-member jury was deadlocked after seven days of deliberating over the alleged role of two engineering firms hired as consultants on Flint's water system in the city's water contamination crisis. The lawsuit was seeking damages on behalf of four Flint children exposed to the city's lead-tainted drinking water. Defense attorneys placed the blame on government officials overseeing Flint's drinking water. The plaintiff's attorney, Corey Stern, says they plan to retry the case. For NPR News, I'm Steve Carmody in Flint, Michigan. Congress tomorrow is poised to pass and send to the president the first major climate package in the U.S. It would include close to $375 billion in spending. The Labor Department reports applications for jobless benefits rose by about 14,000 last week, the second consecutive week of such increases, but still below a range that would suggest an economic slowdown. Wall Street, the Dow was up 27 points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. An official with the MBTA says the agency could release plans for alternative travel for upcoming month-long tea closures as soon as tomorrow. Thousands of riders will be forced to find other options when Orange Line and part of the Green Line shut down this month. A fleet of shuttle buses are set to run along the closed routes, but more details are unclear. Municipal leaders say they need to know where and when the shuttle buses will run ahead of the shutdown. Commuter rail trains will also be an option for riders. The lines will be free to those with Charlie cards in Zones 1, 1A and 2. Mayor Michelle Wu is introducing a new policy that aims to bring more diversity, equity and inclusion to Boston real estate projects. It would request developers disclose their plans to include women and people of color in any large building projects. Wu believes having that information about the teams and investors behind developments will help advance economic opportunities in the real estate sector for everyone. This will at least signal and um, force all of us to be incredibly intentional about what matters in this process. 
that it's not just about height and floor area ratio, um, but who is benefiting and what that impact will feel like on the ground. The Boston Planning and Development Agency Board will vote on the policy later today. Provincetown officials hope to fix by the weekend what they're calling a major sewer emergency. WBUR's John Bender reports the problem is affecting about a third of the Cape Cod tourist spot. All restaurants and public restrooms in the popular commercial area are closed. Residents are asked to limit all water use. Town manager Alex Morse says the sewer issues were caused by a heavy storm earlier this week. If we did nothing and volume continued to be where it was over the last couple of days, worst case we've started seeing backups into people's tubs and toilets and things like that. So we've been able to avoid that so far. The small town's population increases by tens of thousands during the busy summer season. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. Roxbury is getting a major boost to improve several streets in the neighborhood. Boston will receive about $20 million in federal money to pay for improvements, including new bus lines, dedicated bike lanes, and sidewalks. Stretches of Melnia Cass and Malcolm X Boulevards and Warren Street will all see construction projects as a result. The College of the Holy Cross in Worcester is waiving its application fee for public school students in that city. The school's president says it has permanently eliminated the $60 fee to help reduce any financial barriers students in the district might face. Earlier this year, Holy Cross also became a member of a consortium of colleges and universities committed to enrolling high-achieving students from low-income families. In sports, the Red Sox host the Orioles tonight over at Fenway. Patriots will host the Giants at Foxborough in preseason NFL action. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 63 degrees, mostly sunny, near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early Saturday, then it'll be mostly sunny, the high around 77. Right now, it's 78 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A prosecutor in Madison County, Nebraska, has charged a woman with helping her daughter abort a pregnancy illegally. And some of the evidence against her was handed over to police by Facebook. NPR law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi has been following the story and joins us now. Hi, Martin. Hi, Elsa. Wait, so is this the first abortion prosecution after the overturning of Roe v. Wade back in June? Well, some have framed it that way, but it's a little murkier than that. What what happened is that in April, the police in the town of Norfolk, Nebraska, investigated two women, Jessica Burgess, 41 years old, and her daughter, Celeste Burgess, who was 17 at the time. Uh, They investigated them for mishandling human remains. Police say a fetus that Celeste said was stillborn was illegally disposed of, that it was burned, then buried. And the women were initially charged for that in June. But then police got a warrant to see the women's private Facebook messages, and they say those show that this was not a miscarriage, that in fact Jessica had helped her daughter get pills to perform an illegal abortion. Okay, but why would this alleged abortion be illegal if it happened before Roe v. Wade was overturned? I don't get that. Well, 
Police say the pregnancy was 23 weeks along. Nebraska law bans abortion after 20 weeks. Now, that wouldn't have been enforceable under Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Now, it would be, but legal experts doubt it could be enforced for an abortion done weeks before the Supreme Court's ruling. Even Justice Brett Kavanaugh said so in his concurring opinion. So you're right that these felony abortion charges may not very well hold up in court. Okay, well, let's turn to these Facebook messages. I understand police got them with a warrant, right, while investigating, as you say, the mishandling of human remains. How exactly did these messages lead to these illegal abortion charges? Well, these are very private conversations between a mother and a daughter. They're pretty frank. They talk Mm -hmm. about when to take the pills. Celeste writes, I will finally be able to wear jeans. Uh, We should say that we tried to reach the Burgesses and their lawyers by phone today without success, uh, but the two women have pleaded not guilty. And how is Facebook explaining why they gave police these private messages? Well, they wouldn't talk to us about this. They wouldn't talk about this on the record. They rarely do in cases like this. But their parent company, Meta, put out a statement, and it says police gave them, quote, valid legal warrants. And they say the warrants did not mention abortion. But what they don't say is whether they would have handled this any differently if they had known it was an abortion investigation. Hmm. I talked about this with uh, Andrew Crocker. He's a senior staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And he says if a warrant is legal, a tech company like Facebook is going to comply. Every day across the country, police get access to private messages. um, And this is an extremely routine part of everyday criminal investigations. I think a lot of people are waking up to it because of the far-ranging nature of how we expect abortion investigations are going to go. And it's going to touch people's lives, many more people's lives in a way that maybe they hadn't thought about in the past. Okay, well, maybe this is routine, but what do you think, Martin? Do you have any sense of whether companies like Meta are going to be feeling a lot of public pressure not to cooperate with abortion investigations? Well, these data companies have a long-standing policy of complying with warrants that are valid in the jurisdictions that they're coming from. And even Andrew Crocker at the EFF says it's probably not a great idea if they're going to start picking and choosing which kinds of criminal investigations they're willing to cooperate with. What he would like to see, though, is that companies like Meta might be willing to start keeping less information about people on hand so it's not available when law enforcement comes calling. Hmm. And of course, people do have the option of shifting their conversations to other platforms like Signal or Telegram, where everything is encrypted end to end, and that company doesn't have, couldn't hand over your messages even if it wanted to. That is an option. Hmm. All right. That is NPR law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi. Thank you, Martin. You're welcome. Snapchat, the app popular among young people for its disappearing messages, is rolling out parental controls. The company behind Snapchat is giving parents a peek into what their teens do on the app, but just a bit of a peek. It's part of a larger trend among social media companies, which are under pressure to show they're safe for young users. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon has more. Atlanta mom Lori Harbour knows a good part of her daughter's social life takes place online, and she welcomes the chance to better understand what her 15-year-old is doing on Snapchat. I am shocked when I see how many people are on my daughter's Snap and who these people are. Harbour has never met most of them. Her daughter doesn't know all of them in real life either. And not all of her child's communications on Snapchat have been pleasant. Harbor's just glad her daughter has good judgment. I mean, listen, when my daughter came to me and said that a boy asked her for pics, and we all know what they're asking for, she was smart enough to come to me. 
That's exactly the kind of mother-daughter talk that Snapchat's new parental controls are supposed to encourage, says Snap's Nona Farinick. She's director of platform policy, and she says the app is trying to empower parents to help their teens without making young people feel like mom or dad are hovering, just like real-life parenting. If your teen is headed to the mall, you might know who they're going there with. You'd ask, how do you know them? Are you guys on a sports team together? Do you guys go to school together? But you won't uh, be sitting there at the mall with them listening to their conversation. Snapchat is hugely popular among teenagers, and the company doesn't want to alienate its users, which is why Snapchat's parental controls only work if kids choose to use them. They have to opt in for their parents to gain access to their list of contacts. Even then, parents can't see the disappearing messages, only who sent them and when. Snapchat is just the latest social media company to give parents more say in how their kids use apps. Irene Lai of Common Sense Media, which reviews apps for families, says there's a clear reason why. I think these platforms want to show that they do want to take steps to protect kids and that they're capable of doing it themselves, um, You know that they can self-regulate without getting the government involved. She's skeptical that the tools will actually help parents and kids. So is Josh Golan, executive director at Fair Play, a group that advocates for children's privacy online. He says if social media companies were really concerned about young users, they'd make it easier for kids to put down their phones by offering fewer rewards. Things like likes or badges or Snapchat's streaks. Having a snap streak that you feel like, oh my God, as a 12 year old, my life is going to be over if I don't communicate with my friend today on Snapchat. I think that's fostering compulsion. Golan says that sort of behavior isn't good for kids, but it sure helps the companies, which get paid by advertisers for those eyeballs on their apps. I'm Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News in San Francisco. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As states across the country greatly restrict or ban abortion access, one town in southern Illinois is grappling with its complicated past around the issue. At the same time, it's becoming a hub for abortion services for millions across the Midwest and South. From St. Louis Public Radio, Brian Munoz reports. Carbondale, Illinois is a rural college town many likely don't realize they know. Reportedly, it's a place actor John Belushi created the college shirt he wears in the 1978 film Animal House, as his brother was a student at Southern Illinois University, the largest employer in the region. 
The small city of 22,000 is six hours south of Chicago, roughly an hour from Illinois' southern border, and in a region that has a lot in common with its southern neighbors. We're like the south of the north, so if that makes any sense, you know, like we still have some, I would say, like more conservative um, type leaning policies, like attitudes towards most things, um, but we are in Illinois. So. That's Paige Dykus from neighboring Heron, Illinois. She says that means Carbonell is more supportive of abortion rights. Dykus, along with hundreds of residents, stretch out on blankets during a recent summer concert at a local park. Within the next few months, Carbondale will be home to what will likely be the closest abortion provider for people seeking services in the Midwest and South. Carbondale resident Belinda Johnson says while she considers herself anti-abortion, she thinks the decision should be left up to an individual. A woman should be in control of her own body. If she chooses to have an abortion for her own personal reasons, I don't think it should be a problem. The belief that the decision should be up to a patient is common here and is shared by the majority of Americans according to recent polling. The recent resounding vote in Kansas striking down a proposed state constitutional amendment that would have stripped away abortion protections is consistent with the finding. Other states a relatively short drive from Carbondale, including Missouri, Kentucky, Arkansas, Indiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee, all have enacted extensive restrictions or total bans on abortion. Despite restrictions in surrounding states, Illinois is one of a handful that have expanded abortion access since Roe was overturned. The right to the procedure was enshrined in state law back in 2019. Jennifer Pepper heads Choices, a reproductive health clinic based in Memphis. She plans to expand in Carbondale in the coming months, making it a regional oasis for abortion services. You know, I was staring at a map and it just kind of all came to me and said to my team, I think it's this town in Carbondale. Depending on when the clinic opens, it will become the first or second here to offer elective abortion care in decades. In 1985, anti-abortion doctors and nurses petitioned the board of Carbondale Memorial Hospital, the largest in the region, to stop the practice, and the board voted to do so. George Maroney was a hospital administrator at the time. He's now retired. It was just the pressure of people in the community, and board members are easily pressured. As before, some in Carbondale and its surrounding communities aren't happy about the prospect of the town's new role in the abortion debate. Abortion opponents from the region testified at a recent city council meeting in hopes that politicians would find a way to intervene and keep any new clinics from opening. I do not want to see an abortion clinic here either. I am against abortion. And uh, please don't bring death to the city and to our region. And this is going to haunt you the rest of your life. Carbondale City Councilman Adam Lowe's has pushed back on the opposition. What they've been told is that there is nothing that we can do. And what I've told them, speaking for myself rather than for the city, is that even if there were something, I wouldn't participate in that, and I don't think there's a majority for it. While the media impact that new abortion clinics will have on Carbondale isn't clear, advocates are welcoming them as the city becomes a draw for those seeking abortion services throughout a large part of the region. For NPR News, I'm Brian Munoz in Carbondale, Illinois. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. It's 78 degrees at 549. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll introduce you to the doctor who five years ago unsuccessfully tried to warn the world that a monkeypox outbreak in Nigeria could spread globally. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Looking for a staycation read? Our new pop-up newsletter is filled with great suggestions that will transport you to the sun and sand. Sign up now at WBUR.org slash beachbooks. 
In sports, the New England Patriots will kick off their preseason tonight at 7 o'clock in Foxborough. They'll take on the New York Giants for the 31st time in preseason history. The Pats went 10-7 and in the regular season last year, finishing second in the AFC East. Their regular season opener is on September 11th in Miami. Why has Siberia seen triple-digit temperatures in recent years? I think for many, and even in the physical sciences community, this will come as quite a surprise. New research finds the Arctic is heating up four times faster than the planet as a whole. One reason, an endless loop of melting sea ice. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. There's this saying you often hear about prison. At least you get three hots and a cot, meaning your meals and your bed are provided. But in most cases, the food is terrible, and it's often not hot. And prisons frequently charge money for a lot of other things that you and I might think of as essential. Things like soap, toothpaste, paper to write letters. And so many prisoners can barely afford to pay for those things. Journalists at the Marshall Project wanted to know how incarcerated people actually make money while in prison, and they corresponded with dozens of people in prison now to paint a picture of their finances. Beth Schwartzapfel wrote about their findings, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so I gave a few examples already, but can you just tell us, like, in general, what do incarcerated people need money for? Incarcerated people need money for just about everything that people who aren't incarcerated need money for. So, for instance, when you hear the phrase three hots in a cot, right, you think like, okay, at least they don't have to pay rent. But in some states, they actually are charged for room and board. Wow. Yeah, they're not paying the kind of rent that, you know, people on the outside are paying. But even a dollar taken off of their paycheck adds up to quite a lot. They're paying for food. Many, many people we corresponded with say that the food is, in one man's words, not fit for a dog. Mm. In another person we spoke to told us that it's not even enough to meet the caloric needs of a grown man. So a lot of people have reported that they need to supplement their food at the commissary. But those are just the basics. So for instance, we spoke to a number of people who don't get shoes. Unless they want to wear the hospital Crocs that they're issued, they have to purchase things like sneakers and boots. And these were prisoners in states that are snowy and cold. Well, let's talk about just what kind of money you can make in prison, especially if you are not someone who is getting money sent to you from the outside. The people whose stories you told, I mean, they do a variety of work while incarcerated. Can you just give us an idea of what some of the more, quote unquote, official jobs are that are available to incarcerated people? What surprises a lot of people is that almost everything that makes a prison run is done by prisoners. So prisoners cook the food, serve the food, mop the floor, do the laundry. I went for a prison visit a couple of weeks ago where you had to take a shuttle from the main building to the building where the visitation was. That shuttle was driven by a man in orange. Mm -hmm. So pretty much every task except for security, you know, they do all of the maintenance that helps a prison run. And even though their compensation varies, none of these jobs even remotely approach minimum wage. Can you give us an idea? What kind of money are we talking about here? Typically, pennies on the hour. The ACLU recently did a survey of all 50 states, and the average wage ranged from 13 cents to 52 cents per hour. 
So the max average wage was 52 cents per hour. Right. And let's place that figure side by side with the price of what some of these items they may have to buy cost, right? Like toothpaste or soap, paper. What are generally the prices of things like that in prison? So one sort of very common purchase is a package of ramen noodles, which we think of as very cheap cheap food, right? And it's cheap to a certain extent, right? But if the commissary charges 35 cents for a packet of ramen noodles and folks make 20 cents an hour, it would take them more than an hour to afford a single packet of ramen noodles. And that's not even very filling. Right. So this is why many incarcerated people turn to side hustles. Like your sources told you about cooking on the side, preaching, haircuts. Can you talk about some of this other work that they go and find themselves to get paid? One of the things I was struck by in reporting this piece is just people's ingenuity is amazing. I was just so moved by how much people will make something out of nothing. So one of the women we talked to is sort of a party planner. So if somebody has a birthday party coming up, they'll come to her and they'll think of a theme and she'll use cardboard and colored pencils from the commissary to design signs according to that theme. Mm. Um, So like one girl loved Sprite, she said, so they made all the the signs in green. (laughs) But everything from that to, you know, a lot of prisoners are functionally illiterate. And so people will pay other people to read their letters for them or to write letters for them. We have a woman who works in the official state salon at her prison, so she can't charge for the haircuts. Those are supposed to be free, but people will, quote, tip her so that they don't have to wait on a long, you know, weeks-long line for a haircut. And so they'll give her some commissary items or something as a tip. And, of course, there's a darker side to this, too, right? Like some people feel forced to sell sex or sell drugs. Yeah. I mean, uh, just about everything you can think of is worth something in prison. I mean, the overdose rates in prison have been skyrocketing in the last few years, and that's because people buy and sell drugs. And in prison, you're so desperate that you'll take whatever you can get your hands on. You know, friends will spray a piece of paper with something and people will sell it and smoke it. Yeah, people will sell sex. One one gentleman made us a list of things that he's heard of people buying and selling, such as you can hire somebody to beat someone else up for you. You can hire somebody to put in a word to the warden with you. You know, if you have in with some of the correction officers or with the warden, that's worth money and people will pay for that. Yeah. Is there any particular story from anyone you interviewed that has stayed with you? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's so many. One gentleman I spoke to, he actually got the government stimulus check, which was the first time he'd received outside money the entire time he was incarcerated. He said... I sent a bunch of it home to save. I sent some of it to my kids. I tried to be really good. He's like, but I will admit, I splurged on some ice cream and some (laughs) chips and some candy. He said, it's the first time I've had snack food in 10 years and it felt so good. It, It was remarkable how much the little things mean, you know, when you've been deprived of them for so long. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, this drastic underpaying or in some cases not paying of prisoners for labor, Are there any efforts right now to require some kind of minimum wage when incarcerated people do work? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because one thing that shocks most people is that if you read the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, Mm -hmm. there's an exemption for prisoners who are convicted of a crime. Yeah. So people in prison are the only people in this country who are constitutionally allowed to be held as slaves. And that's kind of the ground that a lot of this stands on, legally speaking. There was one 
court case quite some time ago, I think it was in the early 90s, where a court ruled that in fact prisoners were subject to minimum wage. It was appealed and the Office of the Inspector General did this research and there was this very telling quote in that report where it said essentially that prison administrators felt that if they had to pay prisoners minimum wage, that the entire prison system as we know it would collapse. And I don't think that's an overstatement because think about it. If we had to pay all of them minimum wage, you know, multiply that by multiple millions of people. I mean, it's, you can't do it. And so it sounds histrionic, but it's not untrue that if prisoners weren't paid pennies on the hour, then the whole system would collapse. There's just no way to do it because they're the ones doing all the work. Beth Schwartzapfel of The Marshall Project, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fascinating. Oh, thank you for having me. No, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this stuff. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 78 degrees in Boston at a minute before 6 o'clock. Ahead, as all things considered continues, Attorney General Merrick Garland makes a media statement days after a search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. That's just ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 63 degrees, mostly sunny, near 77 degrees tomorrow. Slight chance of showers early on Saturday. Then it'll be mostly sunny, a high of 77. Sunday will be sunny. 82 will be the high. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The search warrant was authorized by a federal court upon the required finding of probable cause. In a nationwide address, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland defended the legality of the FBI search of former President Trump's residence. It's Thursday, August 11th. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead, five years after Charlottesville, the city has approved a plan to melt down the Robert E. Lee statue that was central to a deadly and violent white nationalist rally there and put a public art installation there in its place. And Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella was one of the officers leading the U.S. Marine Corps at the Kabul airport when the Taliban took over. We'll bring you the second of a two-part conversation where he recounts what follows. Marketplace is coming up at 6.30 with all the day's business news. It's 6.01. Now this news. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Attorney General Merrick Garland says he personally approved the decision to execute a search warrant for former President Donald Trump's Florida estate this week. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the Justice Department says it's also taking steps to unseal details of the warrant. Garland says the department has filed papers in federal court in Florida to unseal the search warrant and the property receipt of what was taken during the FBI's court-authorized search this week of Mar-a-Lago. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. Garland says he personally approved the decision to seek the warrant and said it was not a decision made lightly. He also defended the Justice Department and the FBI, both of which have faced fierce criticism from Trump supporters since the Mar-a-Lago search. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. More explosions were reported today near the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Russian-occupied southern Ukraine. As the crisis there appears to escalate, the U.N. Security Council met to hear an update on the situation. More from NPR's Tim Mack. Russia and Ukraine have each accused the other of being responsible for shelling near the nuclear plant in the past week. IAEA head Rafael Grossi briefed the UN Security Council about the crisis, laying out a number of episodes of shelling near the complex and adding that he was, quote, very concerned about military actions jeopardizing nuclear safety. He said that the IAEA assessed, quote, no immediate threat to public safety as a result of the shelling, but warned this could change at any moment. Grossi offered to personally lead a stabilizing mission to assess safety at the plant. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kiev. Prices for U.S. homes hit another new record across much of the U.S. during the second quarter. That's despite a slowdown in buyer demand and rising mortgage interest rates. Median prices were up 10 percent from a year ago in the majority of metro areas, rising to a price of $413,500. Gas prices hit a milestone in the U.S. today. NPR's Scott Horsley reports it's helping extend a rally on Wall Street. Stock prices are going up as gasoline prices continue to fall. AAA says the average price of regular gas nationwide dropped below $4 a gallon today for the first time since March. Falling gas prices pushed inflation down last month from a four-decade high in June. Many investors think that will give the Federal Reserve room to proceed more cautiously in raising interest rates. Betting markets now anticipate a half percentage point rate increase at the next Fed meeting in September. Oddsmakers were expecting a larger rate hike before this week's cost of living report. Wholesale prices are also easing. The producer price index unexpectedly fell by half a percent between June and July. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow is up 27 points to 33,336. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Charlie Baker signed a big climate and clean energy bill into law today. Supporters of the law say it should help build an equitable and robust offshore wind industry here. It will also help residents afford electric vehicles, reshape the future of natural gas in the state, and allow 10 municipalities to experiment with banning fossil fuels in new construction. More now from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. This law comes less than two years after Massachusetts enacted a different big climate law. The first one set ambitious goals for cutting carbon emissions in transportation, electricity, buildings, but it lacked a lot of details about how the state could achieve those goals. That's according to Senator Mike Barrett, who is a key architect of both laws. So we had the basic roadmap sketched out, but we didn't have any implementation tools. This year's bill is about getting us down to all those emission limits we need to hit. A central element of the law is equity. 
It's designed to make the green economy accessible to all and reverse some long-standing environmental injustices. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The governor also signed a cannabis reform bill into law, but he did veto one section. The law creates a social equity trust fund to encourage participation in the industry by communities that have been historically harmed by marijuana criminalization. The measure also clarifies procedures for permitting on-site consumption of cannabis products. The governor vetoed a section requiring the state to recommend ways to make medicinal marijuana permissible at K-12 schools in the state. There's now a new process if you want to raise a flag outside the City Hall in Boston. Elected leaders in Boston must now pass a resolution or issue a proclamation to raise a flag at City Hall. Mayor Michelle Wu signed that ordinance today. This follows a years-long legal battle in which a Christian group sued to fly its flag outside the building. The case eventually made made its way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled for the Christian group, but said Boston could update its policy if it wanted to be more selective in the future. The NBA is honoring the late Celtics legend Bill Russell by retiring his number six league-wide. The NBA commissioner made the announcement today in recognition for the Hall of Famer's success on the court and his civil rights activism. Russell won 11 championships with Boston. He died in late July. In sports, the Red Sox host the Orioles at Fenway. In preseason football, the Patriots host the Giants. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 63 degrees, mostly sunny, near 77 degrees tomorrow. Right now, it's 78 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Attorney General Merrick Garland has broken his silence about the unprecedented search of former President Trump's property in Florida this week. In careful public remarks, Garland said he personally signed off on the warrant application and he has asked a court to unseal the warrant so the public can see it. Faithful adherence to the rule of law is the bedrock principle of the Justice Department and of our democracy. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been listening in, and she is here with us now to talk more about it. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so I know that Garland generally likes to speak through the work of the Justice Department, but today he made a choice, right, to make a personal, direct public statement in this case. Why do you think that is? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about exactly why the FBI searched former President Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago. Trump and Republican leaders in Congress have been demanding answers about the search and blasting the Justice Department without providing any evidence. So Garland this afternoon asked the court in Florida to unseal the search warrant and the property receipt. That's a kind of inventory the FBI gave Trump's lawyer. Garland pointed out that a search warrant was a big step for the DOJ, perhaps referring to what our sources have described as a runaround from Trump and turning over the materials that should have gone to the National Archives. Here's Garland. The department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means as an alternative to a search, and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. And of course, also, Trump could have made this information public on his own, but he didn't want to. He preferred to issue a statement accusing the administration of weaponizing the Justice Department against him, again, with no evidence. Okay, well, as we mentioned, Garland said he signed off on the warrant application. A judge signed off on the warrant. How soon, Carrie, do you think the documents might be released? 
Well, the court filing by the DOJ this afternoon cites intense public interest in the case and the fact that the former president is the one who confirmed the search in the first place. But it's giving Trump a chance to object to the release of these documents. There's no word from Trump yet, so it's not clear how quickly the court will act on this. I'll add that several media organizations have gone to court to unseal these materials, too. And we don't know exactly what the FBI was looking for, only that it relates to what the National Archives has called the discovery of some highly classified documents Trump took to Mar-a-Lago. The archives got 15 boxes back, but the FBI on Monday took a bunch more boxes. Okay, and I remember, like, when Garland became attorney general, he was accused by Democrats for not moving quickly enough to investigate Trump's inner circle after the Capitol riot. And now, I mean, he's getting criticism from Republicans who want to defend Trump. So do you have any insight as to how Garland might be thinking about all these different pressures on him. Yeah, this attorney general wants to play it right down the middle of the lane. He says all the time that he wants to follow the facts and the law, not to undermine any investigations, but also not to smear anyone who's not charged with a crime. Here's more of what Garland said today about that. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. All Americans are entitled to the even-handed application of the law, to due process of the law, and to the presumption of innocence. Well, I want to talk about public perception of the Justice Department because this week Chris Wray, the FBI director, raised concerns about an increase in threats against FBI agents. And there was even an incident in Ohio today at an FBI office there. What did Garland have to say about all these threats? The attorney general didn't directly reference the incident in Cincinnati, but he spoke forcefully on behalf of the FBI and his prosecutors this afternoon. I will not stand by silently when their integrity is unfairly attacked. The men and women of the FBI and the Justice Department are dedicated, patriotic public servants. Every day, they protect the American people. And the attorney general says he's honored to work alongside those people as this process involving uh, Trump and the search at Mar-a-Lago plays out over time. That is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thank you so much, Carrie. Happy to be here. Racial justice advocates in Charlottesville, Virginia, are reclaiming one of the symbols that sparked a deadly and violent white nationalist rally five years ago this week. The city has approved a plan to melt down a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and create a more inclusive public art installation. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports it is one of several anti-hate initiatives in response to the white supremacist violence there in 2017. In a downtown Charlottesville park, grass now grows over the spot where Robert E. Lee sat astride his horse, Traveler. It's, uh, it's different. It's, uh, it's much more serene. Don Gathers is a co-founder of the local Black Lives Matter group and served on a citizens' advisory committee that recommended Charlottesville remove Confederate symbols from public spaces. He was among the hundreds of counter-protesters who turned out five years ago to stand against the white nationalists fighting to protect the Lee statue. On the night of August 11th, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klansmen, and other white supremacists marched through the University of Virginia campus bearing torches. The next day, they showed up at the downtown park. It's not what you can remember, it's what you're still trying to forget. Uh, I, I, I remember the entire day, all the, uh, 
the hatefulness and the evilness that, 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 that transpired here. Here's how KKK leader David Duke described the mission during the Unite the Right rally. This represents a turning point for the people of this country. We're going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump because he said he's going to take our country back. Gathers recalls things escalated quickly. As they lobbed uh, <laughs> all manner of things, rocks, uh, soda cans filled with concrete and cement, uh, water bottles filled with urine, tear gas and, 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 uh, and smoke grenades and, and literally every five to seven feet, I'd say, fights breaking out. Gathers says police didn't intervene until the governor declared a state of emergency and shut down the rally. Later, as white supremacists spread through town, a neo-Nazi rammed his car through a crowd of counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring dozens of people. Two state police officers monitoring the scene died in a helicopter crash. His hometown was ravaged by white supremacists. Because of President Trump, Gather says, they felt they had cover to come out of the shadows. No longer are they uh, embarrassed, they're emboldened. Much of that goes to uh, the credit of 45, uh, with his continuous dog whistles to them. And, you know, no one wanted to accept that or believe it as it was unfolding. But after August 11th and 12th, Charlottesville, there was January 6th. As the fighting broke out in Charlottesville, Trump responded by placing equal blame on the anti-racists and the white supremacists. This egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides, on many sides. Days later, reporters questioned his response. Trump declared that there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. I think that Charlottesville was the early warning sign. Anti-hate activist Emily Gorsensky. You can draw a straight line from the events of Charlottesville to January 6th. Gorsensky, a transgender woman, was attacked during Unite the Right events in Charlottesville and pepper sprayed by a white supremacist who later pleaded guilty to assault charges. After a series of death threats, she moved to Germany, but remains active in fighting the groups responsible for what happened in her hometown. Her experience led her to use her training as a data scientist to track white supremacists and neo-Nazis through online projects called First Vigil and How Hate Sleeps. There isn't awareness of the ways that these white supremacist groups recruit, attract members, share their ideology, share their messaging. And that's a real problem because we can't simply eliminate the groups to solve the problem. We have to eliminate the undercurrents of white supremacy that give rise to these groups. Another project in Charlottesville is trying to upend the narrative around the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. It's called Swords into Plowshares and is being overseen by the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center. Here's director Andrea Douglas. Taking something that was harmful and then transforming it into something that is useful and of the cultural desire of the place. The city donated the statue to the Heritage Center after approving its plan to melt down the bronze and use it for a new work of public art. Two groups have filed a lawsuit trying to stop the plan, but Douglas says they're moving ahead and gathering public input. This is about doing something different than what was done before. 
before, one portion of this community made decisions about what would be in our common spaces and negated the voice that had it not been for Jim Crow, could have had a voice. So we're trying to return that voice. Douglas says the idea is to create an inviting and equitable space where all of Charlottesville can interact with one another and the reworked art. For Don Gathers, it's still hard to come to the park where Robert E. Lee stood sentry since 1924. It's, it's kind of surreal because the, the ghost of his presence still permeates heavily in this space. Much like the country, he says, it feels like there are warring spirits vying for dominance. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Charlottesville, Virginia. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 78 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, the second part of our conversation with the officer who led the Marine Corps one year ago when Kabul fell to the Taliban. In business news, state gaming regulators are expressing concern about the offerings at the state's two resort-style casinos. A report released today shows Encore Boston Harbor has far fewer poker tables now than it did before the pandemic. It also shows MGM Springfield has about half the number of table games than it predicted it would in its initial application. State gaming commissioners said today they may require more frequent reporting from the casinos to ensure that they are delivering what patrons want and the jobs that come along with the table games. On Wall Street, stocks were mixed today. The Dow finished up 27 points at 13,337. NASDAQ fell 75 points to close at 12,780. And the S&P 500 was down 3 points to close at 4,207. Marketplace will be up in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family owned and operated, offering brand name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free holiday is this weekend. Shades, blinds, shutters, and drapery at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Coming to City Space on Tuesday, August 16th, a primary debate with the Democratic candidates for Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor. Free in-person and virtual tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 63 degrees, mostly sunny and near 77 degrees tomorrow. I didn't get any of that as a choice. I got sex and then I got pregnant and I got to raise that child in poverty. And I don't want like my daughter to be like, oh, mom regrets having me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I didn't get a say. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8.
on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Let's pick up the story of Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella, Marine Corps commander, still serving, still active duty. Last August, he was one of the officers in charge of security for Kabul airport as Afghanistan fell apart around him. And the airfield he and his troops were protecting became the only way out for Afghans and Americans desperate to flee. Yesterday on the program, we heard what it was like to experience firsthand the chaos of August 15th, 2021, the day the Taliban took over Kabul. It wasn't until a few days later, Richardella told me, that his phone began to buzz. I started receiving a lot of emails. I started receiving a lot of text messages. Uh, many of these people, um, some top former officials, uh, some with a lot more rank on their, their collar or, or retired at this point, uh, reaching out to me, how they got my name and number, I don't know. Uh, many peers of mine reaching out, hey, you need to look for this guy. This is his name. This is how many people he has. These are his family members. And it, it, it just became constant. I mean, all day, every day, people reaching out to you, asking for help. You know, about three to 5,000 people in a gate trying to get just a small family through was very tough. Uh, I did do uh, some, some of those missions. Uh, I would call them to help out in the middle of the night uh, where we, we would open a side door to a gate bring family in after we had coordinated with that family and the people back here on how to signal, where to link up, when to come in. We bring them in and we take them to the bird immediately uh, to, to evacuate. Do you remember anybody in particular, an individual or a family who you were able to help? Uh, not by name, uh, but I, I can picture them right now uh, as we speak. Describe them to me. Yeah, there was, uh, there was a family, a gentleman who was an interpreter, my friends reached out to me, told me this was a good guy. He had all the necessary paperwork. He just couldn't get to the gate and he had his family with him. So middle of the night, uh, many of these people had, had been outside the gate just trying to get in uh, for five days or so with no food, no water, yeah. very tough situation. Uh, brought the family in, uh, took a picture with them to send back to my friends just to verify that everything was good. And I drove them. Uh, with, I don't know, 10 people in a five-passenger SUV there, all sitting on top of each other, some sobbing, uh, some elated, and drove them straight to where they were going to be processed into the, into the system and then put them directly on, on the bird. That, that was very gratifying. It, it was very tough, very unrealistic to do for absolutely everyone. Uh, they just happened to be able to get to that point in the gate that, uh, that I needed them to get to so that we could grab them and bring them in. Anyone who haunts you, who you couldn't get out? That's a good question, because I think this is what Marines struggle with. The combat aspect of this mission was not hard. This is what Marines trained for. I think what people struggled with the most, both while we were there for the evacuation and even when we returned, because we are all sons and daughters, we're all brothers and sisters, we all have families, and this is what you were dealing with. Was this just absolute crisis of humanity and looking in these people's eyes and them looking at you as their only way out because they truly believed they were going to die. And as we you know, watched women having babies in front of us or handing their babies over the gate because they knew they couldn't get in, 
uh, some people dying right in front of us from just absolute heat exhaustion and whatever medical condition they may have had. And then bringing families who more often than not, because they were usually large, uh, 10, 20, 30 people, uh, families would be separated quite often as you're coming through a very narrow portion in a gate and all, you know, all the families coming through these crowds that were very violent. Uh, we're breaking people apart and you bring kids in and they're crying for their parents who aren't there. Or you bring a mother in who's losing it because her son couldn't get through. Looking at these people, hearing the screams, the cries, being clawed at and looking at these people in their eyes. And I think what was even tougher is that not all of these people were qualified to get onto our aircraft to be evacuated. So some of those people that we brought onto the base, we then had to escort off the base. And after you tell someone, once they're finally in the base, in your bubble of security, and then they don't clear because they don't have the right paperwork or whatever it may be, and then you have to then uh, take them off the base, uh, that was very tough. Marines really struggled with that. Yeah, you're told me how you train and prepare for every possible scenario going into a situation like this. And you're describing a situation that one couldn't possibly prepare for as, as a military officer, as a human being. No, uh, it, it, there's no way you could, you could ever think through that scenario. In fact, when we were training, you know, we, we trained every single day to do evacuation operations. You know, we had other Marines in our unit you know, play the evacuees. <laughs> but once you get on the ground and you induce that panic and that chaos and that friction, it, it's quite a different story and there, there's no organization, there's no discipline, uh, and it's, it's, it's quite chaotic. You left Kabul on August 30th, is that right? Yes. What was that like, flying out and knowing this was how 20 years of war was, was gonna end? mixed bag of emotions, to be honest with you. Uh, we had received a rocket attack on the base that morning, so uh, we were on high alert. Uh, but to know that this is how it was gonna end, you know, the, the previous deployment I had done there, uh, the many friends that I'd seen, many different units deploy over there over the years, re really kind of defines the my generation, my career in a lot of ways uh, for a guy like me. Sure. It's, it's very tough to see it come to a close as it did. I wonder if on that day you got a little closer to understanding what an older generation of American service members and veterans might have felt. Um, and I'm thinking of the, my dad's generation who fought in Vietnam. And then many of them had the rest of their lives to wonder you know, if they had fought a war that, that some would see that could be seen as a waste. I share that sentiment. I, uh, I felt closer to that generation in that moment than I ever have in my entire life. But as I would tell any one of those Vietnam veterans who I'd thank for their service, uh, more strenuously now, uh, having a shared experience with them, as I would tell my Marines who look back on their experience a year ago, that they did well uh, given the circumstances, they saved lives, they helped good people, they hurt bad people, and they executed in an outstanding manner and kept their honor clean. 
That is Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella, who was leading a battalion of Marines in charge of security at Kabul airport when the Taliban took over Afghanistan last year. Colonel Richardella, thank you. Thank you very much, ma'am. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. The Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org.